Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Coaching Call podcast. On this podcast, we'll cover various types of coaching by trainers in sports, martial arts, fitness, and business. We'll discuss each coach's methods to getting the most out of their respective athletes or clients and how they attempt to change the platform in which they coach. Join us on a fun adventure as we discuss unique coaching styles. We've all been coached before, in school, at work, or on a team. Coaching is a universal part of how we get others to get something done. Join your host, Raphael, and his guests on this unique journey in coaching. Hi, I'm Sifu Raphael, and this is the Coaching Call Podcast. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. This episode was made possible by listeners like you. If you enjoy my show, go ahead and buy me a cup of coffee. Make it a large. To donate, go to paypal.me slash Raphael. That's S-I-F-U-R-A-F-A-E-L. I'm trying to keep this podcast free of advertisements. Anything you can donate is greatly appreciated. Thank you. I really appreciate your support. My guest today is Dr. Brett. Dr. Brett has had an immediate impact on those who desire more success, enhanced performance, greater self-sufficiency, and overall sense of happiness. Good morning, Dr. Brett. Thank you so much for joining me on the Coaching Call podcast. How are you today? Awesome. Very good, very good. So happy you're joining us today. We have so much to talk about. (laughs) Very cool. Shoot, I'm good with whatever. Let's start from what your motivations have been throughout your life. What motivated you in your actions? Let's go back when you were a little guy, right? Running around. Who influenced you? What motivated you to go in the direction you are in today? You know, we grew up in a town. I say we because I'm an identical twin. And we grew up in a town a long time ago that was pretty decently anti-Semitic. And I remember, you know, being physically unsafe for a couple of years. You know, we had a fight. My twin brother was super aggressive, so he would fight a lot mm. whenever he was cornered, and I would fight a lot less when necessary. And I remember getting to this fight with this kid, and I won the fist fight on the playground or whatever. I was like in sixth grade, I think, at the time. And then he came after me again at school. I just remember making this decision that. It just didn't make any sense. It's like, you know, the fighting wasn't getting us anywhere. My twin brother kept fighting, but I kind of made a decision then, probably at 12 years old, that that wasn't the path. And I think, you know, he, as identical twins, I think his, like, semi-conscious, unconscious decision to the challenges we had in, in childhood to, you know, make fuck you, basically. Mm. So he worked on Wall Street and made tens of millions. And I think I had made a decision. I wanted to figure out why we're here. What, you know, what's this about? Why are we on this planet? And so, you know, that was part of it um, for sure. Um, but I've always been sort of wired to make a difference. I like helping people. I like making a difference. It's just who I am. So it doesn't matter where I go on this planet. If I can add value, I will. You know, I, I you know, I've sat next to injuries on planes and trains and, you know, I've traveled and lived all through the United States and internationally. And when, if and when it's appropriate, if somebody, you know, wants a little bit of perspective, um, you know, I enjoy, you know, offering it because I've experienced so much. Understanding that you didn't want to continue to fight. It's interesting that you had a twin, identical twin, right? Who, who did all the fighting. So if people didn't know you guys were twin, they're like, man, he fights all the time. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, you know, well, we, you know, we have different personalities and, you know, eventually it got, you know, there, it's being identical twins is, is fascinating. People like to stereotype and, you know, mm-hmm. say it must be so amazing being a twin. And in some ways it is, but in other ways, when your twin brother is like a triple alpha is hyper aggressive, it's not so easy. And so mm. I playfully say that, I've had a lot of fights in my lifetime, in part, not just because of all the anti-Semitism crap we dealt with when we were little kids, but but really in part because one out of 10 times, I didn't want to roll over to my twin brother who was so alpha and dominating, right? He, he used mm-hmm. to have to, he was hyper competitive and really aggressive and like to dominate. And, and I got to a place in my life where, 
you know, sometimes it just didn't, I didn't want to roll over. So that's why I would wind up in situations like that with my twin. You know, in my life's journey, I think trying to understand psychology is fascinating, right? Getting a doctor in psychology, it's a long, difficult road. I'm not sure, you know, a lot of parents necessarily recommend it for males because it takes so long to make a living. You know, you're in mm. grad school for most of your 20s, and then it, it's a super challenging field in a lot of ways, but there's so much to learn about human nature and about people and potential. And in a lot of ways, it was a very good fit. I've, I've developed an entrepreneurial style. So I've sort of married the sort of business aspects and the sports right. aspects, you know, so I've developed a business now that I truly love, but it took me, it feels like forever to figure that out. You know, <laughs> sure. like I'm in my... Sure. I'm in my 50s. <laughs> like, gotcha, gotcha. It wasn't that easy getting started. Realizing that you, you didn't want to be a fighter, even though you sometimes had no choice, what made you decide? What experiences did you have as a young man that you decided, I want to get to know what people are really thinking and, and how can I make an impact? Because we all have a choice when we're, we're in junior high school, high school, what do we want to do with our lives? What propelled you to choose psychology? You know, it was tricky. You know, I, I went to Emory University in Atlanta. I wanted out of the Northeast. I grew up in Fairfield County, Connecticut, and I had a, a, a very loving and um, reasonably controlling Jewish or the stereotypes pretty accurate. And so I wound up going to Emory in Atlanta, not California then. I wound up in grad school in, in California, but I was an economic psychology double major at Emory. So it really took me a while to sort of figure it out. I worked in business for a couple of years in New York City first. And then when I was in the business world, it just felt empty. You know, it, it yeah. felt relatively soulless. I'm like a 23, 24-year-old kid who's not wired for money. My twinder was wired for money. He loved to freaking take money off people our whole childhood. And I just was wired differently. I liked making a difference, right? It's always the way I'm wired. So the business world at the time felt empty. Now, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of executives, and I love it today. But, mm -hmm. but I get to run the business my way, and there's a huge personal growth aspect to it, right? Whereas like, when I'm a kid in business, like it just wasn't, it, it wasn't motivating. And like I said, it felt, it felt emotionally and spiritually empty. And so I applied to grad school programs all around the country and wound up getting into one in San Diego. And, and that's where I started my journey at 25, 26 years old, getting a doctorate in psychology. What would you say were some of the challenges you had early on? you know, looking for, uh, or, or trying to find the path that you are on now? Because I'm sure you've, you've had plenty. Can you recall one that really stands out for you? Well, I mean, I've had so many, it's insane. Of like, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think growing up in Fairfield County, there was a lot of pressure to make money in, in, you know, in the wealthier communities. We didn't grow up with money, but we were surrounded by it. Uh, I think psychology was a new path that way. I, I felt fairly, I, I think fairly accurately judged on and off through my 20s and 30s because I really mm. was helping people as a male. And in, play, in the wealthier towns in Fairfield County, it's like you're a male school teacher. There wasn't a ton of value placed on that. The value was on these guys that made a lot of money, millions of dollars or certainly high six figures, you know, the Wall Street crowd. And so there was a, it was very difficult that way. You know, our, our, I remember the next door neighbor to the house I owned in Westport when my twin brother and I bought our first house together and eventually I bought him out. She didn't even know my name. She would just ask about the twin, you know, my twin brother with the Porsche. I mean, right. The one that was making the million bucks a year or whatever it was at the time, probably more. Right. And so it was a difficult environment to live in where you're, making a difference and you know and you're in an environment where that's not so valued right it wasn't you know what was valued was really was money you know how much you could produce and 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 achieve and, and accomplish uh, from a more of a material perspective and i was sitting there like helping thousands of souls and 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 feeling like it wasn't particularly valued by the community I lived in. So let's talk about something you just brought up, and it's very interesting to me. The difference that people have on money, the value people have on money, because to some people, that's all that matters. And then to other people, it's more of a human connection. Like for me, it's more of a human connection. 
It's more of what I'm going to do with my day. And it's not what I'm driving or where I'm living. But a lot of people associate, like you said, she asked only about your brother because he's driving the Porsche. Yeah, totally. He had the fancy stuff, right? Yeah. So a lot of people are very materialistic is the way I think of it. But what what do you think sets people apart? And being that you're, you're in the field now, you have a little bit of a, a better idea of what makes someone gravitate towards that. Well, look, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's a really good question, Rafael. And I, I, I certainly, you know, values and character are a big chunk of that, right? And how we're raised and what environments we're raised in, mm-hmm. what the environment is teaching us about love, about creativity, about money, about our values and so on. You know, look, my fundamental values are are freedom, love, and creativity if I had to choose three, right? right? And, you know, so money for me is a a vehicle for freedom, right? And so there's a ton of value. I never put down money. There's a ton of value in money because it creates freedom. But for me, heart and spirit are so fundamental, right? So it's like Mm -hmm. when I've built a life and a business around connections, right, around people in relationships. And when I play in the stock market, I think it's very pure. I like the markets because like it's, it's very pure. You're there to just make money. Mm -hmm. For me, my business isn't like that. I don't prioritize money ever, really ever. It's not, you know, to me, it's about the right fit. Is it, you know I mean? Is it there? Are we going to like each other? And if we do, you're going to win. That's what I tell parents all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, if your son or daughter likes me and we have chemistry, you guys are going to win. And that's because I know what I can provide and how I get behind people. And the money is part of running a business, obviously, but it's never been primary. Otherwise, I would have worked on Wall Street like my twin or, or gone into right. you know, finance or business or whatever it is. If you go into psychology, you have to make a living. And as a business coach, because I love business coaching as well, it's important to be efficient, right? It's important to understand money and to be good with money. But, but if money is primary, you don't belong as a teacher, right? I'm like a high-end teacher. Mm-hmm. Right, you belong somewhere else, like working on Wall Street, where it is primary. So, you know, look, if you're a young male, you know, because I've coached thousands and thousands of people and a lot of adolescent athletes, if you grow up in a community where more it's super where money is really important, right? And in America in general, it is more so than maybe some other countries, right? Like, what are you gonna major in? You know, economics or finance or business or whatever, law or pre-law, whatever it is, pre-med. Because mm-hmm. you know, I have a lot of doctor friends and when I look back, their primary motivation wasn't making a difference, right? It was that that was where the money and the status was. They weren't interested in finance. So they went into medicine, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's super challenging for for kids to make choices out of passion and love when the money might be deferred for long periods of time, if not, if forever, right? Because mm-hmm. think about if you want to be a male school teacher, right? And maybe you'll make 100K eventually, but you're not starting there. And if your friends are making a K coming out of school, that's going to be pretty, pretty rough. And are your parents going to coach you? Is your dad and mom going to coach a son to go into a field where like an artist or something where you might struggle? Uh, um, Often that's not the case. They want their kids to money, make a really nice living first, and then maybe enjoy it second. And so we don't live in a culture in general where like Norway or somewhere, the teachers are elevated, right? Where profession and they should be here, right? Well, shoulds in reality are, you know, as you know, <laughs> yes. often light years <laughs> apart. The reality is, at least where I grew up in Fairfield County, it wasn't that valued as a male, right? It was actually put down and pretty aggressively, right? Because even what I did as a psychologist was noble, like in the world that I grew up in, right? right. It was quote noble, which wasn't a compliment. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Right. No, it was not. Um, so, you know, look, I mean, life is super challenging. I like to help people develop and follow their passion, you know, and I truly believe if you get creative enough and present enough and dynamic enough that you can find a way to make money out of something that's not necessarily as lucrative as um, finance per se or law per se. I believe it's totally doable, but it will take more creativity. Without a doubt. When you talked about 
a school teacher or someone like that, when I think of a, a social worker, right, they, they work so hard and they help so many people and they make nothing, basically. And I've known some social workers. Actually, my sister allowed a social worker to live with her because she could not afford anything. And she met this girl in church. She's like, I need to help this woman because she's helping so many other people. And my sister has always helped people in that way. And so this, this young lady came and lived with my sister probably, I don't know, so many years. And she just had an amazing heart. And both my sister and this young lady. And so when we think about where we are in life, a lot of it is driven by passion. Some of it is driven by what is expected of us, right? Like parents, they want us to expect us to have a certain type of job. But eventually, even I've, I've spoken to a lot of people on Wall Street, they couldn't hack it anymore. And then they finally, after they made the money, then they went after their passion. They, they found their why. And, and I think that's what you do with people is you help people find their why. What's their purpose? What are, why are they here? And when you're helping an athlete, their why is probably to win, right? Because yeah, maybe they're thinking money is, is it, but money is not really it. Because if they don't constantly win, the money's not coming. So, uh, you know, I think you tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah, it, obviously it depends on the level. Well, it depends, you see, on the level of the athlete, certainly at the professional level. It, it's it's the money is a big part of it. And the winning is obviously a huge part of it. And like you said, athletes all along, you know, clearly want to win. But a lot of them lose the joy somewhere along the way. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times what we're doing is we're like teaching them how to get the fun back. But I do a lot of mental game training because my perspective is that if you don't train your mind, it doesn't matter who you are, athlete, Wall Street, business person, teacher, you're going to wind up on freaking Lexapro or Prozac or Ativan or high levels of weed or, you know, vaping and so on. So really it's untrained minds that are so prone to substance abuse and to conflicts in relationships and so on. And so the fundamentals of what I'm working with are often helping people do a lot of mental game training because it affects Mm -hmm. every aspect of your life. You know, your level of self-discipline influences all of it, right? And then your focus influences all of it, right? And so aligning people's values and focus is obviously part of what I'm doing. Yeah. And, and so you are working with a lot of pro athletes and, and regular people, I guess, as well, right? Uh, yeah, it's very diversified, you know, it really is. I mean, I just started working with an MMA athlete, you know, that's really fun, professional athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it really can can vary on the sport. I've worked with Olympic, Olympic runners, Olympic athletes. I've worked with, I do a lot of work with D1 and D3 athletes and high school athletes, right? Mm-hmm. And then occasionally I'll get an eight, nine or 10 year old kid not where I specialize, but if they're, you know, for whatever reason, it's some kind of spiritual fit, I'll, I'll help, right? Because I'm, I'm good at what I do. And you, you're currently, you just started, you were telling me before, you, you're working with a professional hockey player? Um, I don't have a professional hockey player playing with, a, working with a whole bunch of junior hockey players in D1 oh, okay. and D3 hockey players. But uh, yeah, I'm working with a, a professional fighter, Oh, okay. Um, which is kind of fun, right? Uh, it's, you know, like martial arts are fascinating because, you know, I'm biased towards mar- martial artists. Like that's why we connected, why I was receptive oh, yeah. because they do a lot of work around the mind and around focusing. And uh, there's a spirituality in martial arts that I'm very attracted to. You know, one, one of the arguments that a lot of martial artists are making is that there is that disconnect between a MMA fighter and a martial artist. But it depends. It depends on the person because you can have a lot of MMA fighters who actually understand the levels of commitment, the levels of mindset more than someone who maybe just trains two or three times a week compared to someone who is in basically stepping into a cage or a ring. And they're going to, you know, there's a possibility that it can get really hurt. Yeah. You know, I work with a lot of golfers as well. And the higher you go in any sport, the higher the commitment. Just mm-hmm. the competition is so severe, as you know, that, you know, the commitment has to get stronger and stronger at the highest levels. So that's what's fun about kids that are more talented. And also, you know, their focus is just tends to be great. Their commitment and their focus tends to be greater, or that's the issue that we're addressing, right? What is mm-hmm. 
disrupting their focus? Is it that they haven't trained their minds enough or is it, you know, something else, right? And usually there's an interplay there, as you know. I mean, as a martial artist, I know what my mindset is and what I've gone through and all the training I've done over the years. And I constantly still train every day. I'm not a martial artist that says, oh yeah, I used to do that in a day. No, I still do it. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing from, from your point of view as a martial artist, because you said it's fascinating, their mind, their their work ethic, and so forth. What do you see? Well, it's not per se like martial artists so much, you know, in terms of like, it's, it's about helping someone achieve their dreams and their goals, right? And so each person, when when I start to work with somebody, there's usually some kind of problem, some kind of catalyst right? That's going to have them reach out for a sports psychologist or a life coach, whatever that is, right? And so then the challenge is to find out who they are, what they're about, what they really want, and then what's in the way of achieving that. Mental game training is a huge component of it, obviously, right? But there, you know, sometimes there, you know, most people struggle with communication issues. Like, like I consider myself a Michael Jordan type mm-hmm. around communication. I'm a motherfucker on my end. I just like, I don't drop, ball, I don't balls around communication. It's just not my, you know what I mean? I'm, my commitment is through the roof. It's like, it's ludicrous, right? I was just watching a little mm-hmm. little clip on, do you ever see that movie, the Rick Moranis movie, Spaceballs, the Mel Brooks movie from 30 years ago? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, that scene where Darth Helmet, they do the ludicrous speed, you know, they go from light speed to ridiculous speed to ludicrous speed. It's like hilarious, <clears throat> right? I don't know why at 6 a.m. before I was meditating this morning, I watched that little <laughs> clip and I just started laughing so hard. It was crazy because I, mean, I have a super intense day. I needed to start a little lighter, you know, mm-hmm. but, but, but literally communication is a huge element of what I'm doing, even with top athletes, right? Because they have to deal with coaches and trainers. And, you know, I mean, there's so many people in their camp that they have to deal with and the media and so on. So that the communication aspect of it is tremendous. So we're just dealing with so many dynamics you know the self-awareness obviously is a huge piece but your communication skills is another huge piece that a lot of people don't you know just because you're a therapist doesn't mean you're a great communicator right just because you're a martial artist doesn't mean you're a great communicator right because even a martial artist as much mental gain training as most of you guys do doesn't necessarily make you a great communicator and so if you're a great communicator you're still even limited as a martial artist because you're mm-hmm. coaching all these freaking people right? And and you're training all these people. And a big element of it is the relationship, right? Mm-hmm. And really good coaches know how to sort of motivate and they know how to hug and know how to get tough and right. And they have this flexibility, adaptability thing that I know I have that I think is totally fundamentally important for most people on this planet. I think you get a lot more out of life when you're highly flexible and adaptive. That's my perspective or my bias, right? So I'm constantly helping people, you know, be more flexible, less black and white, right? More intuitive. And when you train your mind and more present, you get far more intuitive. And then we're working a lot on self-trust and self-belief, which is all sort of interconnected with that stuff that I know makes total sense for you. Oh, you know, when you just talked about self-trust, I mean, that's huge. Because even as a martial artist or anybody, a golfer, that self-trust, you have to trust that you've done your work. You have to trust in yourself. You have to trust in those around you. And then you have to trust in your own abilities. But then you also have to trust in your planning, to trust in, in everything. So trust is huge for me. And, you know, a lot of times it's difficult to trust, to trust others, right? And, and that... Well, as you know, as you know, Raphael, right, the, the trust of others really is generated from high levels of self-trust, right? Because the higher your level of self, like the more you're, you don't worry so much about being, you know, ripped off or taken advantage of because you're paying attention, mm-hmm. right? You know, and, you know, you're trusting you, you're trusting your instincts. Like w- one of the things I say often is I feel like I'm intuitively right you know, 85 or 90% of the time and 10% I'm just fucking wrong. You know what I mean? So there's an awareness that, you know, sometimes you don't, you're not going to get it right all the time, mm-hmm. but the vast majority of the time I can intuitively feel when someone is staying clear, like they're not a fit, yeah. you know, right? <laughs> they're not, not going to be fun. It's not going to be a fit. 
too much drama or too much delusion or whatever it is, right? And that's a higher level of self-trust. In my 20s or 30s, I was developing that by making a lot of mistakes, right? Taking on people or helping people that probably, you know, in retrospect, led to a lot of pain, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and as you get older, one of the uh, potentially one of the bonuses is you get a little bit more wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. And that wisdom, you know, is related to self-trust, right? You trust you enough to know when a situation you know, or a person is not a fit, and then you pass. And, and you know, that that's a lot of people, are, a lot of people actually not doing that. A lot of people think they can help everybody. And that's a big mistake I see. And, it, you know, if, if they're not a good fit, you know, and if you want to help this person, pass them along. Someone else can help them, right? Yeah, and that, but that's a level of spirituality as well that I think you one can develop over time. Like, I've gotten to a place in my life where it's much easier for me to let go than it was like 10 years ago or 20 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Now, like as I get to the far into the second half of my life, right? I'm just like, it's not a fit. It's not a fit. Or if someone fucks me over, pass, next, right? I can just let go. Yeah. In the yeah. beginning, I had so much passion for helping. The passion for helping has never changed. I, uh, it's just the way I'm wired. Right. What's changed is my ability to let go of situations and people that aren't a fit. Mm-hmm. Like I don't want drama. I don't want. I'm at a stage in my life where I have no interest in drama. Right. I don't. You know. I, I politics are fascinating, but I have no interest in dumb political discussions where people are intransigent. Right. <laughs> I totally agree. That's why I don't talk politics. <laughs> yeah. And I don't mind talking. I'm just not interested if I think your mind is closed. No iPad. Right. Absolutely agree with you 100%. When it comes to taking on a new client for you, are there certain protocols that you follow in order to go ahead? Obviously, you're going to feel that connection or no connection. If you feel no connection, you're going to go and pass. But are there certain protocols that you go for? Yeah. You know, it comes like 30, 40,000 hours in. I mean, so as a licensed psychologist, so I, I don't like, it, it, there's nothing rigid in my world. There's no black and white in my world. It's very mm-hmm. intuitive, right? So it's all feel based. And so the vast majority of the time, it, I'm either going to feel it as a fit or not, and then I'll pass if it's not, or it'll just break apart. I, another thing I tell parents often is, look, if we're not a fit, I'm not, I'm not taking your money here, right? I'm not you know what I mean? It's not going to, it'll, it'll break apart pretty quickly. You know what I mean? And, it, right. and if it isn't, again, it's, it's going to be a home run for you guys because my commitment level is so high. And if I get behind you with these skill sets, I know there's a really good chance you're going to win. So I'm just mm-hmm. doing my world in a much more intuitive way than I've been working on this for decades, but I feel like now it's just sort of how I live. Right. If, if I, if it feels right, I do it. And then the, you know, I'm a big boy, so I've learned how to change my right. I can communicate if something's not working, right? And then we, you know, we talk it out. I like to be fundamentally decent, as you could tell, right? Mm-hmm. So we try to, you know, I try to do my end as close to 100% as possible. And then when other people, you know, occasionally, you know, I'm a handshake guy. I don't make people sign anything, you know, that's unusual in my world, mm-hmm. right? So occasionally I get stiff and I don't, it doesn't bother me because, you know what I mean? Because then I know it's not a fit at all, right? Then I'm just going to move on pretty quickly, right? I don't mm-hmm, mm-hmm. chase the money or whatever that is that people do, right? So it's a more fun way to run a business, but it's not the way it would probably be taught in grads for something, right? Like, right, of course not. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, I'm doing right. I'm like, you know, I'm doing an intuitive, heart based kind of like, business basically mm-hmm. right? it's heart based it's like does this feel good will it be fun will it be creative well like i just got off the phone with this hockey player right before we talked and the kid's 17 or 18 or whatever and man it just like we liked each other i could just tell like yeah, yeah. it's gonna be really fun to help this kid get to d1 hockey you know he's still in high school mm-hmm. and the, the initial goal would be d1 hockey and and that's a fun goal to get behind i like getting behind people's dreams yeah yeah that's a cool thing right yeah i think so it's a great way to make a living (laughs) you know dr brett when it is it is (laughs) when you realized and you said you you do business differently now than you did say 10 20 years ago when you realize that it's not that i did differently yeah let me clarify that i was an overgiver 10 years ago mm-hmm. like so i just helped everybody right so that was the way i did it differently right i would just try to help everybody right right dumb 
anyway go ahead <laughs> what what was that mind shift for you what 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 propelled you to say you know what i can't help everybody and, and obviously you were doing it for a while it wasn't like overnight uh, it's it, it had to be a mind shift yeah, in your right. end in order for you to say you know what i can't help everybody I'm only going to help help the ones that want me to want my help and that there's that connection. Look, I, I think, you know, maturation, I like the question a lot. You know, look, I think maturation and immaturity is, is definitely a part of it, but there were mm -hmm. some major catalysts that sort of helped that level of maturity. 40, after helping thousands and thousands and thousands of souls all through my 30s, mm -hmm. I really, it didn't lead to happiness, right? You know, right? You know, grad school in psychology, is a phenomenal education, but it doesn't teach happiness, right? I had to, to yeah. learn happiness, right? It's like, it was mostly self-taught, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I unhooked my life and I traveled for a couple of years and I had a, a like a basically a near-death experience. I, I, I did the wrong kind of, let, let's just say, gotcha. um, spiritual journey type work. And I worked with a guy that was irresponsible on an energetic level. And I wrecked my nervous system. And I spent 100 days twice with mm. little to no sleep. And I'm talking about mm. way less than an hour a night right. for like, you know, three months. I mean, and many, many nights of zero. Something I couldn't physically survive today, I don't think. But yeah. at 40, I had enough stamina to somehow survive it. And I had a good, good two or three years of pretty intense chronic fatigue on the other side of what I went, what I went through. Mm -hmm. And I lost my, I lost my health. I lost my business. I lost my self-esteem. I lost the woman. I lost most of my assets. I came back to Connecticut at 41 to start over. And I was, you know, suicidally depressed it was a very rough time. And I, I basically had a couple choices. One is I ended or two is I built it back. And I built it back within a year with intense fatigue and a lot of anxiety at the beginning. Mm. And I did it by meeting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of strangers mm -hmm. for what I call a coffee, breakfast, lunch, dinner, or an actual coffee. And, you know, and I would focus on them, even though I didn't feel good. And that's why I teach, you know, I've worked with a lot of business people. I can, I teach people how to build businesses right. yeah. the old school way, not just the internet way, right? It's like, you know, you focus on other, not self. And then my playful metaphor, I have many Dr. Brett expressions, but one of them was just, you know, out of every 10 people you meet, if you're present and engaging and interested in them, one out of 10 is going to become a client, friend, or lover. And that's how I built my business back at 41 years old, not feeling good in less than a year. And I had a, mm. and then from there, I went to LA and I wrote a book in five years writing a, uh, a story based on what I experienced and I outgrew the trauma. So I actually, you know, I had it professionally edited, edited and I just decided not to publish the story. I didn't want to focus my life on the trauma mm. and the past. Right. And so, you know, and I, even when I was in LA, I lived there for three years. I wrote a screenplay with a Hollywood insider. I sort of turned myself into an artist in my, you know, right, mid forties right. or whatever. And then I, you know, shifted back again. I mean, life is fascinating, right? I shifted back again. And then I moved way into the sports psychology realm because at my core, I'm an athlete. Mm -hmm. You know, I was on the golf course last night and I was striping the ball. I, I really don't play very often. I play to a six handicap. I think if I played, you know, two or three times a week, which I just don't have the room to do, mm -hmm. I, could be, I could be scratch even at, you know, at this age, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I, you know, I mean, I just, and we're not talking from, you know, we're talking from 6,500 yards, not, you know, not 7,000 yards, okay. not pro distance or 7,500. <laughs> but the point is, though, I'm, I can play for real, mm -hmm. right? It's kind of fun. That feeling of being an athlete, you know, when I'm working with athletes, I'm at home, right? It's like, it's just where I'm most comfortable. We grew up, my twin brother and I, playing baseball, basketball, everything you can think of, you know, tennis when we were little. Um, we just right. didn't have any size, you know, no size, you go nowhere. That's basically how it yeah. works. Right, right. One of the things that you talked about was reinventing, right? A lot of people don't realize that if they're in a part of their life that they're not happy about, they can actually reinvent their lives. And, and I think there's a lot of things that stop people from doing that. And, and that's obviously one of the biggest one is self-doubt, right? When people have self-doubt, it really propels them down. And for me, when I think about self-doubt, it's, it's that looking back in the mirror and what are you looking at, right? You have to become comfortable with yourself. 
I, I think that's obviously what, what happened with you because you said something that was pretty scary and, and you said, what do I do with my life? Do I end it? And, and that's the scary part, right? And, and I'm sure it was scary for you even to think of that because to think about ending your life because you think there's nothing else. And unfortunately, there is still a lot of suicide that goes on and with young kids and anybody at any given age. And it's a shame. But the fact that you were able to find that motivation, you know, get rid of that doubt in your life, I think that's huge. And I think that's something that, I mean, for me, thank God, I, I've always had that, that guardian angel. My little sister died. Well, actually, she was my older sister. She died when I was about three or so. And I believe I should be dead many times over. But I think she's my guardian angel. And I always look at her picture and I always imagine her as my guardian angel because my life has gone in so many different directions. I've had so many great things happen to me in my life and so many bad things happen to me in my life. And I don't think if I had that, maybe I, I could have thought of ending it. But I never had that thought. But it's important for us to realize mm. that. Sometimes we have to look for that in someone else because we're there to help people, right? Yeah, and, and the distinction, there's some important distinctions here, Raphael. For those that have never experienced severe depression, because you know the sleep deprivation led to severe depression, you're, it's mm -hmm. like you're biochemically fucked. And so, you know I mean? That, that's a huge element. You know, some people are, are, you know, I've seen a lot of life and I've helped a lot of people and I've done decades of clinical psychology and now sports psychology and so on and so on. But, you know, the, the severe depression thing is like really challenging. And so the, for those that have never been through it, they don't fully understand what it's like to be so chemically bound that, you know, mm. I spent a year I couldn't physically smell. There was no smile wasn't mm. and i've worked with people for me it was like i made you know i worked with the wrong human being i did something that yeah. is esoteric you know it's very very people people understand what i did on this spiritual journey most people mm -hmm. if i say i lost everything they think it's drugs or something right that's their first right. thought right i never mm -hmm. i'm not a drug person or whatever right a little bit of weed here and there but it's not my you know not my thing but the severe depression thing those that have been through it, they, you know, you understand something, why people can get to that place. Mm -hmm. And for some people that I've seen, like as an identical twin, we've had, you know, identical twin friends since we were little kids. And one of them did a form of suicide through heroin addiction, right? And, mm -hmm. but there was an emptiness to him. I never had the emptiness right. thing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I just right. made some mistakes and wound up in a, you know, in a, in a really rough place. And, but I had an infrastructure to build it back from. One of the most disappointing parts of that experience is when I did turn to professional help, it was very disappointing because one of the things that I do is I can recognize people's strengths really quickly and then, you know, help them build back whatever they lost based on what their strengths are. And when I turned for professional help, when I was going through it, this psychiatrist that I that like I still remember this. He's like, you know, maybe it is okay to work in McDonald. Wasn't okay, right? I was a mm. talented guy that made a series of mistakes and wound up in a pretty horrible place, right? Some people it's a little more complicated, right? Depending on their history, mm -hmm. right? If they've had a history of drug and alcohol abuse or something and never put together a fundamentally strong life structure in the first place. We're looking at a totally picture. And when you're looking at somebody who's put together a very solid life structure, who then, you know, made a mistake and wound up in a severe place. So this is the part about psychology that gets very complex, right? And this is why I'm a little bit critical of some people that call themselves life coaches, because the, the $10,000 six-month training is like 20 to 50 hours of experience you know, you get a doctor in psychology, you're looking at 4,000 hours, 2,000 pre-doc, 2,000 post-doc, minimum of four supervisors, five years minimum, more or less. I mean, it's an immense amount of training. And so in helping people, there is a lot of value in having that background because you are trained and then the experience on top of that. That's why a social worker, like you were alluding to earlier, if she's got, you know, 30,000 hours of experience, 
you know, she can be as good as anybody on the planet. It doesn't, she doesn't, you don't leave a doctoral level. You need fundamental training and a lot of experience. Mm -hmm. And then the more you've gone through in your own life, the better. Like what I often say is if you've lived adventurously and you've lived with courage, you know, that's half of it as well. Right. Yeah. Because if you're afraid to leave your little area and you're helping people, you might be doing a great job listening and you might add value for sure, but there's a limit to what you can do with, with, with in general, if you haven't, you know, haven't ventured out, so to speak. And the challenge for a lot of people that are helping people is they haven't always ventured out because when you venture out of your comfort zone, you know, you might fuck it up. And that's why people yeah. play it safe. And, you know, as you know, from living life, the safer you play it, the more limited you are. Like you said, it takes courage, right? You have to think of that life is an adventure and you have to live it because you don't know what tomorrow is, right? So well, I, agree I know I don't, and it sounds like you don't, but you know, I mean, that's our perspective, <laughs> yeah, right? Don't. Is we want to live yeah. it as fully as possible. You know, some people, what prevents people from living fully tends to be anxiety and fear, right? fear mm -hmm. and anxiety in particular i feel like with all the covid the lockdowns and whatever it's just enhanced the level of anxiety right and the level of fear right and mm -hmm. so what i you know i feel like i worked twice as hard last year trying to help people stay out of fear as a martial right. artist what are you doing you're teaching people to be present right and mm -hmm. out of fear right because fear yeah. you're being choked and you go into fear now you're choked out <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> you panic right you do panic so, so your toes you know right. fear and panic are very close together yeah. when you think about it right right because you freeze up you don't know what to do yeah. but if you've trained in anything not only martial arts if you follow the training the training is preparing you for the moment right so life is preparing you for the moment that you have to experience or you're experiencing and a lot of people forget that and that's where their fear comes in and the panic right so like you said, somebody's being choked out. You have two choices. Follow the training or panic and get and then definitely out. get you out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the shirt I'm wearing says warrior, right? So for me, warrior means in everything I do. It's the way I eat, the way I train, the way I talk to people, the way I communicate, the way I embrace someone. And, you know, one of the things that you said that you're a handshake type of guy, right? And that's a that's lost nowadays. And, and you know, kudos to you to still have that, but that's really lost because you know, so people, so many people have gotten burned. And what winds up happening is it's that trust we talked about earlier, right? Because you have to have so much trust in yourself that, and and like you said, look, I've been burnt, and it's okay. There's there's someone else that I can help. And a lot of people don't realize that. And they don't, they don't understand that concept. We're also talking about like spirituality as well, because every time mm. you let go, if you develop higher levels of spirituality, which, you know, is something that maybe some of it's innate and some of it's self-taught, right? And taught potentially through your, your exposure or whatever. But the more you develop your spirituality, the more you realize that, you know, I mean, it's okay to let go because good things come when you let go. And when you hold on, you tend to suffer, right? It's like mm -hmm. basic Buddhism. Like I, I like the historical Buddha, right? Or the historical Jesus. I'm not a fan of all the freaking propaganda afterwards, right? Of but, course. but what are these people teaching, right? They're teaching love, compassion, letting go right? Present moment time at the highest levels, right? Jesus mm -hmm. is healing being so present. It's absurd, right? The Buddha is teaching through a level of compassion and presence. It's absurd, right? Compared to most. And so mm -hmm. I'm drawn to like that process of letting go now, because if I look back on my life, almost all the suffering was some form of holding on. Yeah. When we, and, and this is why I'm, I was so happy to be talking to you today, because when we think about everything we do in life, it, it's a mindset. It's that what we bring forth, right? It's our thoughts. It's our, it's our beliefs. And, you know, it doesn't matter religion or race or anything else. It's, it's what we have in our mind and what we allow to enter our mind, because we can allow negativity. We can watch the news 
and listen to all the crazy things that are going on in our world, or we can be, and that's that's what we put our, ourselves out to listen to, or we can listen to better things. And one of the things that I really enjoyed what you said in our beginning of our conversation is you, during your meditation or after your meditation, you watch something that made you laugh. Something because you know your day was going to be full of, of, of a lot of commitments day. and so forth, intense an intense day. Yeah. But he, here's, and I appreciate you taking the time to spend it with me a little bit. Yeah, and no uh, I hope this is not intense, no. but just fun, you know. No, this is a fun no. part of your day. No, and a lot of people forget that, that every day you have to have joy in your life. You can't just work, 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 or be focused, focused, focused. You have to let go and you have to like, you know, laugh and, and have a good time. And, it, you know, it could be five minutes, you know. And one of the things that you said earlier also is that for a whole year, you didn't even have a smile. And my gosh, I would have hugged you then <laughs> because, you know, I'm a hugger. You know, I, I love hugs. I love that physical contact, right? But when we think about we need to find joy in everything we do. If you're not smiling, find a way to. If you see someone else not smiling, find a way to put a smile on their face. Because that's that connection. That's that connection we're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah no, totally. You know, one of the things I often say is, though, like, some days you're just not going to have your A game, you know? So, yeah, you know, maybe you won't find joy some days, right? It's not going to be there or whatever. But, but if you don't fight it, it comes back sooner, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So oh, yeah. that, that's also, I think, one of the keys is, like, you know, knowing that sometimes you're off, you don't have your A game, you're not going to be freaking happy. And that's okay right. too, because the more you fight it, the less, right, the, the, the longer it takes to come back. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to throw out that little paradox at the end. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, and what we're talking about, it just came to my mind that when someone dies, right? A lot of people mourn, and everybody has a different way of mourning. But when I think of someone who died, I try not to think of the misery that goes, you know, with with death. But I try to think of the joy that maybe that person brought forth. And I always try to remember the funny things that they did, and, and you know, the entertaining uh, aspects of their life. And so for me, I kind of look at death a little bit differently. I look at it almost like. Yes. And look, my brother died at 42, too young. But I don't dwell on that. What I think about is how funny he was. My brother was hysterical. And I always think of like the funny things he did or all the different things he did. Every day, I have a picture on my wall of my brother. I look at him every day. Every day I look at him and I'm like, wow, this guy was so funny. And, you know, and beautiful. He was a beautiful guy. But I don't, dwell on the fact that yes uh, unfortunately he's not around but even when he did die and a lot of people may not like what i'm going to say is i didn't mourn him like the rest of my family did i mourned him differently i i didn't mourn but i celebrated him in a different way and i think that's my the way i'm wired to look at joy in everything to look at we have a purpose in our life and what do we do with it uh, your thoughts on that? No, I mean, I think you have a, a you know a bang up attitude. I think you're aware of that, though. Um, mm. That attitude is you know a pretty cool way to live. It, it, my thoughts are: I remember reading this book, something down under or whatever, about Aboriginal tribes in Australia that do they celebrate death is celebrated, right? So there are certain cultures where death is celebrated. Our culture, not so much, right? I, I think right. in general, you know, American culture doesn't do a great job with death, right? We do denial of death pretty well right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. one of the books i read in, in in my grad school in my 20s was denial of death or something i remember the author but i, I think you know I, I i think about my mom you know only t- once or twice a week or whatever you know for a minute or two and i get sad you know because i loved her so much and she was such a huge influence in my life in so many ways she was a very difficult woman i don't focus on how difficult she was. I, I And if I do, it's only playful, mm. right? Because I tell everybody, I tell so many human beings that I, you know, I my wife is Thai. I met her on a, on a blind date in Bangkok three and a half years ago. We have a tremendous partnership. We were best friends and, you know, we're soulmates. Yeah, we're soulmates. Congratulations. And, you know, and it's pretty extraordinary. 
to meet someone who is so much like your Jewish mother, 8,650 <laughs> miles away. It's crazy, except she's not at all intrusive controlling. That's my joke. Mm. But when I right, think about right. my mother, <laughs> right, and I get sad for a minute or two, I'm not thinking about the intrusive controlling part, right? I'm thinking about, no, of course not. you know, just how, how much, you know, I loved her and how much I miss her. And I only give it, you know, a few minutes a week because I just don't want to dwell on that energy. I'll get sad. And, you know, and that's okay for a few minutes. But, you know, I'm trying to help a lot of human beings and, you know, live a fucking cool life here. So I don't want to do too much madness, right? Mm -hmm. But it's, it, you know, it feels healthy is what I'm getting at. And it sounds like you're, but it sounds like, Raphael, what you're describing here is a similar, you know, pretty cool the attitude towards death where it's you know you lost your brother it sounds like you guys were pretty close 42 is ridiculously young but you're finding a way to turn it into some kind of positive here you know whereas like a lot of people would just you know struggle with the pain and the loss i mean grief is a you know for those that haven't really experienced grief eventually almost everyone will it's a very tricky emotion to handle well it totally is you know i i i i I often say that the two most difficult emotions to deal with are betrayal and grief. Mm. You know, betrayal is a tough one as well. It is. Uh, actually, I lost my mom last March. Mm. Not this one, but last. All, all, all I can think about is every time I think of her is, is the love. You know, that's, yeah. that's what I, I think about. One of the things that, that is, is it could be tricky for some people. And, uh, you know, I'm sure when you start dealing with a lot of athletes and, and, you know, even business people, they probably bring a lot of baggage with them. And probably one of the biggest baggage that I see with people is forgiveness, right? Some have a hard time forgiving themselves for things they've done in their past. And they also have sometimes forgiveness in forgiving family members, friends, and so forth. And they have that a ball stuck inside of them. And that sometimes prevents them from doing things or moving forward yeah i mean look i mean you know again i, I like your depth uh rafael i like the way you process the world here um and i like the questions you're asking you know forgiveness is a tricky one and i think that's one of the potential advantages of organized religion i'm not a, in general an organized religion type because you get a lot of dumb beliefs with the good with the good stuff you know good stuff being you know community and potentially some real spirituality and forgiveness mm -hmm. is at the sort of core of that, right? You know, I think it's important that all of us at some point learn how to forgive, not necessarily forget, like, you know, as a genetic right. Jew, like you just don't forget, like there's certain things you just, not. yeah, exactly. But to forgive, I think, you know, as you know, is invaluable because when we're holding this resentment, you know, it's, it's harming us and others, right? No one wins. In the world of resentment, no one wins, right? That's a nasty world. Resentment's a nasty emotion, right? It is. It totally And so is. it really is. And so anytime, you know, we can forgive, we're probably going to win. Forgetting, like I said, is a, is a different story. You know, that denial and it probably isn't valuable at times. Um, but that's mm -hmm. why I like meditative states so much. Because oh, in yeah. meditative states, you know, I can let go. I can forgive. I can, you know, I can, you know, do high levels of grief. I can handle, I can handle anxiety in meditative states, but that's just thousands, I'm thousands and thousands of hours in. You know, I tell these athletes all the time. I just taught this kid this morning to meditate. I tell everyone to meditate, right? And practice mindfulness and all the fundamentals here. But the meditation, I say, look, if you meditate an hour a day for a year, you're up to 365 hours and they're not going to do an hour a day, right? They're going to start with five or 10 minutes, maybe 20. You need hundreds of hours to get some some real horsepower here, some muscle around handling, well, and also handling tough emotions. Like, you know, I can sit in meditative states and handle grief or handle anxiety and let it wash through me. That's not something most people can do in a few hundred hours of meditation. You're talking about thousands of hours over years or decades. And then you have skill sets that other people don't necessarily have that are invaluable for life. And so that's why... I'm so intense around teaching everyone to meditate and I'm on their goddamn asses to keep meditating because there's, <laughs> there's a lot of horsepower in that world. And forgiveness is just one of those 
aspects of horsepower that you get when you sit in meditative states a lot. If you have a new athlete you're working with and you say meditate, and they're like, what is that? I teach so them to meditate. You, I don't okay, say good. <laughs> I, I teach them. No, we just do a right, simple... Right. I don't use the simple little breath meditation. Basically, right. I, you know, I have them close their eyes and pick up the breath. They pay attention to the in-breath, the out-breath, mm-hmm. one or the other, or both. When thoughts come, that's okay. We're not trying to control thought. We're simply coming back to our focus, which is the breath. The metaphor in golf is there's almost always going to be out-of-bounds left and water right. But what we're going to do is bring our focus onto what we want, which is the fairway. And the fairway is the metaphor is the breath. Right. Mm-hmm. I used, as you can see, I just use, you know, chakras, energy chakra, centers, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, years and years of transcendental meditation, a fancy word, in my opinion, for a mantra, right? You know, like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you can use candles and there's a lots of ways to meditate. The most important thing, obviously, is to just do it every freaking day of your life, no matter what. Yeah. So one of my yeah. playful Dr. Brett expressions is when in doubt, meditate and another one is if you're tired stressed or bored meditate right yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's cool that's when i teach especially kids how to meditate one of the things i tell them is imagine you're in a in a black room and at the corner of the room is a tiny little ball and when you breathe in and also i make sure they understand colors right so a common Mm. color is yellow blue we don't want to have a red ball green is okay something calming so then I have them say, with every breath you take in, that ball gets closer and closer and closer until the ball encompasses the whole room and all you see is that color. And then when you breathe out, push that ball back towards the corner so it becomes a tiny little ball. And that kind of, when people start seeing that, they don't have to think about, oh, I have to take my thoughts out of my mind. They actually still have an active thought, which is to push the ball and to pull the ball. So, I mean, that's the way. Yeah, and that's particularly interesting for people that are more visual. Some people struggle with visualization. Oh, of course, of course. Right? Yeah. So for, for people that are more accessible that way in terms of visualization, mm-hmm. that sounds super powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Other people are going to struggle with the ball because they're just not as good visually. Right. So it really, it, to me, it depends. It depends on I the like person without doubt. Yeah. 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 I like that a lot. Yeah. Though. Pretty cool. Dr. Brett, so how do we, we need help. But we need your help. How does some of my my listeners get in touch with you? <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, you know, drbrettdenkin.com is my website. D-R-B-R-E-T-T-D-E-N-K-I-N.com or drbrettsjourney.com. Mm. We have a, a sports psychology podcast and website, drbrettsjourney.com, D-R-B-R-E-T-T-S journey. So there you go. Perfect, perfect. This has been a really cool conversation, and I'm so glad that you and I connected. I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate being here. It's very fun, Raphael. I appreciate it a lot. Absolutely. What do you have in, in, in as far as what you're doing this coming year, or next year? Any projects or any fun stuff you're doing? You know, we're 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 building out the podcast. You know, I have a team, and it's going really well, and I really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're going to keep going with the podcast. Um, you know, we're getting, you know, we're just incrementally growing this thing. I have uh, the ability to persevere. It's just a personality trait that I have. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and I like the two kids that are working for me a lot, not a little bit. That's awesome. um, so it's really fun to have a team. Mm-hmm. We're probably going to add a third kid at some point, you know, shortly here in the future. Um, you know, I pay attention to the markets and my client base just keeps expanding. We're living here in South Florida. Um, I was deep sea fishing. Couple days ago, I saw the catch. Uh, I, I saw the catch. <laughs> yeah. I was on a golf course last night. I, I, I love my wife so much; it's crazy. We've got a puppy, and maybe we'll get another one. Mm. And then who knows? Maybe I'll, maybe I'll knock her up in a year or so. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to get, you know, and you know, it's look, it's awesome, and maybe a little complicated at times. Of course, but like I don't, you know, there's not a lot for me to change at this point. Mm. I'm really just, you know, going. You know, it's, right, right. it's fun. Dr. Brett, what's the name of your podcast so people can start listening to it? Uh, DrBrettsJourney.com. Oh, that's the, okay, Um, DrBrettsJourney.com. Nice. is the name of our podcast. So appreciate everything. Of course. Listen, you have an amazing day. I know it's a a great day for you. So you go out there and get them. Thank you so much for being here today. 
All right. We'll stay, we'll stay connected. Absolutely. Take care. Thank you, buddy. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'll be back with a new episode and a new guest. You can find all episodes of the Coaching Call podcast on Apple, Anchor, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to podcasts. I ask that you please leave me an honest review. This episode was made possible by listeners like you. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and buy me a cup of coffee. Make it a large. I'm trying to keep this episode free of advertisements. Anything you can donate to the cause is greatly appreciated. To donate, go to paypal.me backslash Sifu Raphael. Thank you and I really appreciate your help.